Welcome to the Words of Grace podcast, where we discuss faith journeys, fellowship, and stories from across the Diocese of Sheffield. Each week, we will feature guests from a broad range of backgrounds and traditions within the Church of England. Our mission is to delve deeper into matters of faith and to ask each guest what has drawn them to Christianity. I'm Ben Fern, and I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Paul Sheridan. Hi, Ben. You okay? Very well, thanks to you. Good, yes. Let's introduce our guest, shall we? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, our guest today is the Reverend Canon Amanda Barraclough. Uh, Amanda was ordained in the year 2000 in Wakefield Cathedral, and after a period of curacy and her first incumbency in Wakefield Diocese, she was appointed the rector of St. Mary Sproprah in 2015. Um, she was area dean for a while and is now dean of women's ministry in the Diocese of Sheffield. Yes, fantastic. It's lovely to meet you. Lovely to see you, not meet you, because we've met before and you've met Ben before. Indeed. You've been a, a great help on many good news stories for the diocese as well, Amanda, which has been fantastic. That's great. It's always good to be good news, isn't it? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all of us comes with the, should come with the dog collar, really, shouldn't it? <laughs> we are. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Amanda, if we start sort of from the beginning, really, and talk about your own faith journey, when did you sort of first come to faith? Um, I came to faith in my early teens. Um, I wasn't from a Christian home. Um, I went to Sunday school when I was really small, but when we moved house when I was six, that was the end of me in church, really. Um, but when I went to high school, I was one of these kids who loved to be indoors at playtime. So if there was a club or a group going on, I was up for joining a club or a group because it meant I didn't have to go outside. <laughs> so I ended up going to the Christian Union as one of those and just got immersed in it, started to see older teenagers who didn't look down on me as, as a, a little 11-year-old who wasn't worth talking to, but I actually cared, and they gave me role models to aspire to, and I began to realise it was their faith that made them so caring and compassionate and valuing other people. Um, I ended up going on a, a Scripps Union house party, um, as a result of, of being in the Christian Union and really heard the gospel for the first time and made a personal commitment. And it was as if Jesus stepped off the pages of scripture and became somebody utterly real, utterly alive. Um, and yeah, I never looked back. That must have been such a huge moment because, you know, get coming to faith in your teens, that's when you're at secondary school, you're sort of finding out more about yourself. It's a a tricky time to sort of navigate the world but this must have been a huge change for you. Yeah and it really helped me have a sense of purpose for my future and who I was and that God had got a purpose for my life. It wasn't just a case of me meandering through trying to work out um, what to do. It was a case of being open to what God had for me. Um, I think I was probably regarded as the as the class Bible basher um, <laughs> And, and I was very passionate about my faith um, and not not intending to keep it quiet in any way. So, um, yeah, I, I would think that if my um, peers at school could see me now, they wouldn't be surprised where I was. No, that's lovely. That's yeah, great. It is a fantastic. Uh, like this, the uh, Christian Union house party. I didn't know how that was going to go, but that's fantastic. And how did that affect your family life? If, you're, if the rest of your family weren't necessarily of a faith background? Yeah, um, I returned from this house party just with 
Jesus stickers all over my Bible and wanted to put Jesus stickers in my bedroom. And my parents thought, this is a phase. She'll grow out of it. She's a teenager. And, you know, um, but they're still waiting. <laughs> I haven't grown out of it. I think they've realized I'm not going to grow out of it. <laughs> um, and I think they are more open to its power to change because they've seen the impact it's had on me um, over over the years. Yeah, I think that's really interesting as well, because I think there can be the assumption sometimes if if someone's a member of clergy that it's been the generic. Oh, I was brought up in Sunday school. Uh, I was always brought up in faith from a faith-based background, but that isn't always My the case. My dad's a vicar, I'm a vicar. Exactly, yeah. yeah. The Anglican Church was really a an accident of, of my history in that we lived for quite a number of those years in a really small village where the only church was the Anglican Church. I perhaps wouldn't have stepped into an Anglican Church or an Anglican ministry without that, but it opened me up to a whole range of other things that uh, would probably never have happened otherwise. Yeah, that was going to be my next question because I'm just out of that CU. Did you then, because of that church was local, you went to that and you stayed within within the bounds of the C of E or did you, wait, perhaps when you went to, moved away from home, did you try different denominations and different routes or? I, when I was at school, um, my parents moved um, and I wanted to stay at the same school to finish my A-levels. So um, through the church that I had begun to get involved with more locally, um, I discovered a, a Christian family who I ended up living with for two years um, during while I was doing my A-levels. Oh, wow. And that really opened my eyes to Christian family life and how God could be embedded in the whole of your home life and family life and really gave me something to aspire to as what the future of my home and family life might look like. Um, and they were part of a, a a much more lively Anglican church that was engaged in renewal um, in the early 80s. Um, and it was an exciting place to be. That's almost a tipping point moment, isn't it? Because it could have been easy to think, oh, my parents have moved, I can't go to this church. And perhaps that would have changed the faith journey altogether. But the fact you showed that commitment, you prepared to live with another family to sort of see through that journey is really yeah yeah it was a, an amazing and very formative time for me and if i might, if i can ask whereabouts did you grow up originally um well i i came from yorkshire originally um my parents moved around a bit so i came to faith whilst we were living in Sh shropshire um and i was at school in shrewsbury um, which is where I lived with the family for a couple of years before my parents moved back up north to um, to Yorkshire again. So post that time, um, finished your A-levels? Yep, went to university in Scotland. Oh, which one? Um, Stirling. Oh, see, I wanted to go to Stirling Uni and um, did hopelessly in my A-levels due to my own laziness and nothing, I can't blame anyone else. And uh, I was going to read um, history, modern history at okay. Stirling. We, we we are contemporaries in a lot of respects. We may have been there at the same time, except you're more cleverer than me, and I was very lazy. I went through clearing, so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't like. A <laughs> yeah, well, there we are. I tried to get through clearing. Yeah. And what did you read at Stirling? Um, I started reading English and religious studies, um, 
and found the religious studies, which I hadn't done at A-level, absolutely fascinating. And so I ended up dropping the English and moving into religious studies. I was blessed to have a really amazing tutor in John Drain, who has written quite a number of books um, um, and was quite influential in shaping my thinking and theology. Church of Scotland while yeah yeah I went to I my first opportunity to preach came in the Church of Scotland while I was at uni yeah I remember that and very engaged with um, a very traditional Church of Scotland but one which a number of students went to and um, started to shape from the inside really fantastic so I suppose post Sterling didn't stay up there you came back down came back down um I had found a lively Anglican church in Normanton near Wakefield um, and travelled there to worship, which is where I met Derek, who I'm now married to. Um, and that allowed me to engage in the renewal movement in a deeper way, largely through worship. I was one of the worship leaders there um, and um, began to write songs and lead worship in, 80s in, choruses yes yep they're all there in the background <laughs> <laughs> well, the other morning my wife and I woke up and we started to both sing a song from the, uh, the Wales Bible Week and I checked it on YouTube and it was something like 1986 at Wales Bible Week and we played it and boy oh boy did it sound like 1986 Bible Week but anyway sorry is this going into the Shine Jesus Shine period? Oh no, this is, no, this is yeah. This this may even be before Shine it Jesus was, Shine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you still have the song music from the songs you? Made? Yeah, I do. Yeah, um, don't use it really now, but um, it was it was significant in being able to give expression to to my faith. Um, I'd had an interesting time through the CU at university, uh, where I had been. Um, one of the leadership team there, the the prayer ministry leader. Um, and interestingly, there was an amount of renewal that was happening there. And there were some people who were quite afraid of that. Um, and there was an extraordinary general meeting of the CU, which um, with the motion that the gifts of the spirit may not be used in a CU meeting. <laughs> and I spoke against that. Um, and the, the the motion was passed and I felt I don't have a place here in the CU anymore and ended up joining the um, Catholic charismatic group um, in my final year at uni. Um, and actually engaging far more with non-Christians because I wasn't as immersed in the in the CU, and that was the most fruitful um, year of my of my time at Stirling. It's interesting. I'd have been intrigued to have heard the arguments in favour of the motion. That seems a very counterintuitive sort of proposal. Yeah, well, uh, people can create all sorts of um, arguments, can't they, by saying this is not the church; it is an arm of the church, and we don't have the authority, what would we do if gifts were misused? How would we handle it? Um, that was all there. But I said, well, um, you can't decide which gifts you're going to accept and which gifts you're not going to accept because teaching, which is very much at the heart of the CU, is a gift of the spirit. Administration is a gift of the spirit. You can't pick and choose. Um, but that, I think there was a lot of fear that was driving that. But 
as I say, my final year when I'd stepped aside from that, I was able to just sit in the kitchen with other people in the halls of residence and talk Jesus to people who, who were not Christians and pray for them. And people um, did come to faith. And those are the people I've still got contact with, um, not people from the CU. That's, I guess stepping out of a bubble in a way and going out and spreading the gospel further. I think it says a lot for us today in the church where we can get so immersed in it that we forget what it's for sometimes. Definitely. This sounds like the journey already towards ordination. Had you started thinking about ordination at this stage? Um, my husband tells me that he knew before we got married that that's where I was heading. But at that stage, women weren't allowed to be ordained. So it wasn't really an option. I had started to explore going on to theological college to train to be a deaconess. Um, but at the time, it felt like God was leading Derek and I to get married and just to immerse myself in ordinary ministry, ordinary life in an ordinary church. I did talk to John Drain, at, um, my, my tutor at, at Stirling, and say, I'm thinking about a, a call to full-time ministry. And he said, you need experience of real life first. Go and get experience of real life. That's what I did. Um, Derek and I got married in 1983, so it's our 40th anniversary this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and immersed ourselves in that r renewed church in Normanton where Derek had grown up. Um, and that was really a good training ground for my future ministry. Um, it was when we'd had three children that I started preaching a little bit and people said, you probably get, need to get some training on this. Um, so I went off and did a, a training as a lay reader. Um, and very soon after that, um, we were in a vacancy and there were visiting preachers coming in, um, people presiding. And it started to grate on me that these people who are offering communion to this congregation they don't know when they put that piece of bread into each of those hands what what's going on in their lives. They're just stepping in to do a role. Um, and I felt more and more that as a stirring for that something more. And indeed, other people had started saying by that point, yeah, you, you, you're a great preacher, but have you never thought of ordination? And it just seemed to echo with what was going on in my head. And I guess you mentioned women originally couldn't be ordained. Do you sort of remember the moment, I don't know off the top of my head, when it happened, but when that restriction was lifted? Um, I do. And it was something of a, weirdly, something of a journey in my head to, how do I feel about that? Am I, am I comfortable with that? And I had to um, <coughs> reflect and, and work out what my thoughts were um, and it probably took me a couple of months, maybe a bit longer to feel, yeah, this is this is good and this is right. Um, and maybe this is, might be what God is calling me to. And it's um, we've had the Peter Tide ordinations recently at Sheffield Cathedral uh, for this year. It is a hugely significant event. It's obviously a, a time of joyful celebration, but it's... Um, very solemn as well. Can you remember the day you were ordained a deacon and then a priest? Um, for me, because both services were quite similar and in the same 
cathedral and with a large congregation, it's difficult for me to tease them out from each other. I, I remember them, but very much has melded into one. It had been a, a huge journey um, and I felt I'd had to fight my corner quite a lot. Um, at the point at which I was beginning to discern that call and start to explore it with with advisors, um, I was a bit of an outlier. There were not many young women who had chil young children exploring um, a vocation to stipendiary ministry. Um, and I had a lot of people saying, you can't, you can't do this. You, you, you can't. You can't run a church with three young children. Uh, you will be giving less to a congregation. Um, and maybe it's not for you or maybe it's not the right time for you. Um, and that grated on me um, because I, I had a hunch. And my hunch was that actually being a mum makes me a better um better priest or could make me a better priest that I I get people's lives I understand um, what people are going through I have a ministry at the school gates um, and actually I I know how to nurture and to um, train people um, to discover um, from whatever level they're at um, so I felt I had to fight my corner quite a bit so when I was training, I decided that I would do my master's thesis on motherhood and ordained ministry um, to see if my hunch that actually motherhood has the potential to enrich a ministry was true. So I, I went and interviewed the, the mums I could find who were in ministry and gained their sense of their experience. And that confirmed to me the potential that motherhood has to to enrich someone's ministry. So I felt I was going into it well armed to be um, effective as both a mum and as as um, an ordained person. It wasn't particularly easy. Uh, my children were 14, 11 and 10 when I was first ordained and it was hard to uproot them from the church that they'd grown up in and got a, a good, strong peer group. It was hard, particularly for my 12-year-old, who absolutely hated me being ordained um, and didn't want to be seen with me when I had my collar on, didn't want to come to church particularly, um, and had a major faith meltdown, um, which I felt quite responsible for um, and so that was part of of what we had to journey through as a family um, as alongside my developing ministry and if I, if I can ask it's a bit of a personal question but have you sort of come through that with that that child has there yeah. been a, a change around there has um, Hannah my who was 12 at the time is now ordained um, and fulfilling her own ministry, um, which, you know, if, if anybody had asked me when I was ordained, which one of your three children do you think may go on to ordination? Hannah is not the one I would have picked. 
Um, but God has an amazing sense of humour. <laughs> and what a great um, pattern synergy as well for sort of both of you in a way from, you know, coming to ordination from a, a background or, you know, sort of an approach you wouldn't assume would lead to that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's a story here, isn't there, about your your faith journey of actually pushing back sometimes. I don't know whether you sense, you must sense that because I think you're self-aware, but lots of that story that's just come out as I've sat and listened to it, and it's fascinating, is pushback. So you push back against the CU, you push back against the, I'm not going to say the patriarchy or whatever, but you, you push back against uh, uh, boundaries. And do you feel that that has continued? Do you feel that you've perhaps mellowed as you've got older, or do you feel that you're still pushing back as you as you have done? And and, and I applaud you absolutely for for that. Um, I I think it's both. I think pushback is part of my ministry as it is now. Do you feel that's been part of your ministry as a as a as a Christian and also as a minister as a as a vicar? I think so. I think I've mellowed as well. Um, I I appreciate the the way that the structure works and how you need to work within the structure <laughs> in order to create challenge that can be heard and embedded. Um, but really being Dean of Women's Ministry involves me being able to to push back and challenge some blind spots perhaps um, and ensure that what we're growing is um, a culture where women can thrive and where we're challenging those areas where that thriving may be more more difficult. It's really it's really interesting. Yeah, isn't and that, it? that sort of brings me on to the diocese itself, the diocese of Sheffield. What what first drew you here, and, and why? Whilst I was in my first incumbency in Wakefield Diocese, to, uh, in 2014, I decided to take a sabbatical. Um, I decided to follow up on my master's thesis, which confirmed that mothering enriches ministry and to ask the question if mothering has the capacity to enrich ministry how well do the structures of the church reflect that so I went up and down the country with a little dictaphone um, listening to stories of people who had um, managed a ministry alongside a young family and in particular those who had taken maternity leave during their theological training or during their curacy um, and how how that was responded to, how difficult it was for them, what it was like to be a curate um, with a young child, how they managed maternity leave. Um, and I came back from that with my eyes opened to a lot of things that go on at diocesan levels um, and aware that I don't fit into a role that just is a parish focused anymore. I need something bigger. Um, I felt the need to move on and started looking for something. And then my eye caught the um, rector of Sprotborough and area dean. And I thought, oh, I wonder if that might be it. Um, and the more I read the profile and felt this is a really good fit for me, actually, um, so applied and here I am. Uh, that was a year after I'd finished that that sabbatical research. Um, so I came in thinking I'd love to find a role where that research that I've done has a space to be embedded in the life and structures of a diocese. 
Um, I'm not sure Area Dean's going to cut that, but let's see what happens. Then we had, as a diocese, the, the traumas that, that came about when there was um, Philip North's appointment as as bishop and uh, when Abby, who is now our dean, was the dean of women's ministry for the diocese. And that was such a, a painful time for women in this diocese, I think, um, that when Abby left and moved to her new post at St Albans, I don't think anybody really <laughs> wanted to pick up the Dean of Women's Ministry or it, it would have been a challenge to do. Uh, but it was Bishop Peter, the former Bishop of Doncaster, who said to me, who do you think is going to be the new Dean of Women's Ministry? And I just felt that nudge inside me that thought, oh, okay. I've got to, I've got to put, I've got to put an expression of interest in on this, um, and I did, um, and it just felt as if everything that my journey had involved up to that point was leading to that moment, and it, yeah, it all fell into place, and here I am. I bet it's been a hugely enriching role to have been a oh, part of. Absolutely, I absolute, it has been deeply challenging. Um, it's been such a privilege to be part of the Bishop Senior Staff team. Uh, when I I applied and, and expressed my interest in the role, I think I had it more in my head that this was about being a pastoral support to women and, and than particularly being an advocate voice for them. Um, I hadn't really clocked that being Dean of Women's Ministry meant by default that I was part of the Senior Staff team. It's sort of, oh, gosh, OK, um, this is something bigger than I thought I was signing up for. But that's good. Um, and it has allowed me to to grow into much more of a strategic involvement in shaping um, the strategy, in making sure that that strategy works well for women and isn't something that feels that it's been predominantly shaped by male voices and male uh, reflections. Um, so making sure that role descriptions are worded in a way that the language um, appeals to women and allows them to feel that this role could fit me. Um, enabling us to have good policies around maternity leave and Policies that are generally family friendly so that um, people's calling and vocation to their family. And I believe that's every bit as much of a, as a sacred vocation as a vocation to priesthood um, are, can be held alongside each other in a way which is life giving for both aspects of life um, and honours that vocational responsibility to our families as well. I think this has just been so fascinating, this whole journey you've taken us through, Amanda. And I want you to be able to go back to the naysayers from when you were a teenager growing up to see where you are now, because the whole journey you've been on, this this pushing back, as Paul said, has just been incredible to, to hear about. Yeah, I, I was just going to say the same thing, but I just wonder how the 19-year-old Amanda going up to Stirling, 18-year-old Amanda going up to Stirling, joining the CU, pushing back against, you know, naysayers for renewal or whatever that may have been, how that that 18-year-old 
girl would have seen now i think she'd be i'm saying i think she'd be absolutely wowed that the way you've got to how do you reflect that journey from from then till now are you are you I shouldn't say proud because we have to hold pride right but but are you do you feel really happy with how that's gone for you i i do i'm not sure what the 18 year old amanda would think of the 62 <laughs> year old amanda um I think I have learnt to value the breadth of tradition in the church in a way that I didn't probably as an 18-year-old um, and to recognise the the work of the Holy Spirit um, both in renewal and in the work of an institution um, and to see uh, um, that... God's creativity in using differing forms is far, far greater than I had even begun to dream of and probably far greater than I even dream of now. Yeah, I think we talked about that. And I've, I feel exactly the same. I'm 61 and we're the same generation. And the 24-year-old charismatic me uh, could not imagine being sat in this room <laughs> talking about this. But it is really, it, and that's really important, isn't it, as well as we recognising women's ministry. But the the eldership ministry, the, the people that have had that experience as to really be able to look across the diocese and see that all of the, the faith streams and the traditions that we've got play a, an important role in forming us and should be mixed together with the young guns still coming through going for it. Yeah. And so I suppose if we look back, how where do you see the next few years for you? It's been a, a, a fantastic ride to this point. How are you feeling about the future? Um, I'm feeling good about the future. I, I'm privileged to have a voice at national level um, because I'm one of the um, National Association of Deans of Women's Ministry. I'm a representative for them on what's called the Transformation Steering Group, which is a, a national body that meets at Lambeth um, to explore where there are issues that impact adversely on women's thriving. Um, so to be able to have that national voice feels a huge privilege. Um, I'm intending to do some sabbatical research next year um, into issues around um, bullying and harassment. Um, and it's how we respond well when those unwelcome patterns emerge particularly for women but generally within the life of a church how we ensure that we navigate that well and don't allow those patterns to become embedded in church life fantastic if i could we mentioned this on the introduction sort of podcast amanda but we talked about the illuminated gospel project which we've covered in network magazine uh, you kindly spoke to me about uh, absolutely fantastic just just explain briefly what it is and how it's been going Okay, so um, we wanted to do something that was had a legacy element to it around the coronation. Um, and it dawned on me that at the coronation service, a Bible is given to the new monarch, um, which, uh, and the words are spoken, these are the lively oracles of God. This is the most precious treasure this world affords. Um, and I thought, whoa, that's that's amazing. You know, could we do something 
that would speak into that. So we thought, thought well, we couldn't do a whole Bible. We couldn't even do a whole New Testament, although that was originally in my head. Maybe we could do a gospel um, and have each page handwritten um, with illumination as if it was monks doing it um, and get different people in the community to do a page, whether they're churchgoers, children at school, other community members, and bind it um, in a binder that has those words on the front. These, this is the most precious treasure this world affords um, and send it to Buckingham Palace. Um, and we got there. We did that. Um, it actually went to the Chapel Royal rather than Buckingham Palace. The security is such that sending it to Buckingham Palace is slightly problematic. But it's um, in the hands of the chaplain to the royal family. It has been used in the Chapel Royal for their services um, since the coronation and is going to be presented by the chaplain to the royal family to King Charles. Um, and it just feels amazing that we as a community pulled together to make that happen and school children were um, writing parts of the gospel and hopefully reflecting on it as they did that, um, knowing that they were part of something bigger than themselves. It's been a great progression, this, because when I spoke to you about it and we worked on the article, uh, you were working on the gospel and it was the hope to send it off to Buckingham Palace, but to hear that it has gone to the Chapel Royal is in the hand of the chaplain. Uh, it's a nice little update there. Yeah, uh, we're thrilled. We're thrilled. Yeah, and everyone I spoke to about it was just thought, what a fantastic idea, God idea, but also that you carried it through, because we sometimes have these ideas and don't, but to, to carry that through. And you work with a number of schools, local schools. Yeah, the schools were, were really engaged with it and very happy to be part of it. I think it fulfilled a number of learning criteria for them. So it, it was something positive that they could do, that could, they could evidence um, some measure of engagement. So, yeah, it, it worked well for us all and has built up uh, stronger community links as well. Brilliant. Well, we're coming towards the end of our time, Amanda, but what we want to do towards the end of these podcasts is to add some sort of uh, light-hearted questions in there. Uh, nothing too serious. Okay. My opening one is based from what we said earlier on. I mentioned Shine Jesus Shine. It's very much a Marmite hymn, I think it's fair to say. So my question is, where do you stand on the pro or anti Shine Jesus Shine <laughs> brigade? Um, I, I, I don't mind it. I, I, I There's the diplomatic Amanda just come on. I suspect Amanda has got quite firm opinions on things, but I don't mind it. I think that speaks volumes. There are a lot worse <laughs> hymns. There are a lot worse hymns than Shine, Jesus, Shine. Um, it is slightly dated. I do think that it's one of those hymns that you actually, to, to really think about what the words mean, you have to sing it slower than it's intended to be sung. So it sort of washes over you um, because there is depth to the words that we rarely engage with. And I think that's true of a lot of hymns that we miss the jewel of the meaning because we're just enjoying the emotion of the moment it's a very good point that uh, i occasionally not very well i'll have to add play the piano at my church and there's a service recently that was one the hymn selected and i had to say um if we're struggling for organists we do have a backup cd and i had to request it for that hymn because i didn't feel 
I could play it fast enough. But as you've said, perhaps we should have played it more slowly, more thoughtfully, but it is a fast-paced hymn. But at the same time, I playing shine jesus shine show slowly would kill it you know you you can't how do you do that you know it's one of those hymns that doesn't the words and the music don't actually fulfill the a, a blendedness that delivers what i would want no that's, i think that's a very good diplomatic answer very nicely done <laughs> uh, so um you're well read what you um What's on the bedside table at the moment? What are you ploughing through? I suspect there's, I can imagine this picture of two or three weighty tomes and then, and then a, a, a light, fluffy novel beside it, but I may be, may be disparaging there. What are you reading at the moment? On my bedside table, if I'm honest, um, it would be light, fluffy stuff because winding down to bed with a heavy tome doesn't work for me. Um, I am reading a, a, a selected um miscellany of essays of C.S. Lewis at the moment which is um, quite enlightening um, and that's that's not the light fluffy one <laughs> they're quite deep um, I have just finished reading um, one of Catherine Fox's novels um, our, our bishop's wife's work right okay so uh, I enjoy things like that uh, but I am a lover of the classics so I love Dickens I love Bronte I love Jane Austen I love Thomas Hardy um, and I'm planning on reading a Thomas Hardy I love rereading they're, they're things that are definitely worth rereading um, so I will be rereading a Thomas Hardy I think next I've got just one more question um, one of the funny things about going to church is try not to laugh when you know you shouldn't laugh I just wanted to ask when you've led a sermon, is there anything that's made you really want to laugh, but you've had to hold back the laughter because it's been, well, church, first of all, but I guess it's been a sermon or a serious part of the sermon? Uh, to be honest, if if I feel like laughing, I tend to laugh. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one to be really po-faced in church. Um, and if I'm wanting to laugh, I won't be the only one. That's good. That's, that sounds very welcoming, uh, open church. I, I hope that the, there is room for laughter in the life of a, of a church and in in our worship, uh, because I think there was plenty of laughter when Jesus told parables and stories. Um, and I think we need to be more at home with laughter in our worship. I think that's a very good point. I know Bishop P and Bishop Sophie said that at the ordinations recently, at the start of the service, they said, because there are lots of young families with young kids and the straight away put them at ease and said don't worry about kids running around or having to be quiet because it's a long service for them and I think that just sets the tone doesn't it to be a, a welcoming environment for people definitely we always make sure that we get the, the children's drug and the children's toys out when there are a, um, a significant number of children in a service so that the parents always feel there is somewhere I can take my child um, where I can engage them and not feel that we have to be you know, straight-laced. There are all the questions I've got. Paul, any more you want to throw in before we start? No, I think that's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing your story and being honest about your story and, and, and uh, just sharing for us the from that young girl to now. And uh, we want to say that continuing your ministry, it's really, really great to speak to you and hear about your story. And we want to say thanks so much for coming. And um, that's the end of this podcast for Words of Grace. We will be recording more. We've got some more great guests lined up, maybe different stories. 
uh, and different backgrounds. But thanks so much to you. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking me. Thanks, Amanda. See you next time.